morning, church. Shall we get right to it? Anybody want to come up here and be a volunteer this morning? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I want to talk about this uh, sword for a moment, and it relates uh, to the text that we have in front of us uh, today. But this is a replica of a Roman short sword that would have been used by the Roman armies in the period of the empire. The Roman short sword was uh, about 55 centimeters long, about 20 inches, um, triangle tip, sharp on both sides, uh, sometimes completely parallel, so very flat looking and sometimes bowed in as this one is. And it was the uh, weapon of choice of the Roman army for their infantry and uh, largely because it was perfect uh, for close combat, for getting in uh, very close to the enemy and still being able, unlike a larger sword, a broad sword might, you might have in your mind, but unlike a larger sword, you could get in very close and you could take care of your enemy quite effectively. This is a very, very effective weapon. Um, most historians agree that the Romans, when they would uh, take over a given area and defeat an enemy, they would look for the enemy's best weapons. And the short sword was likely developed in the Iberian Peninsula or in Spain and adopted by the Roman uh, army uh, subsequent to conquering that area of the world. Now, this is, again, all relevant to us today because when we hear in the New Testament, when we're reading in the New Testament and we hear references to the sword of the Spirit, this is what the New Testament readers would have had in their mind because the New Testament was written into the Roman context. It was written at the period of time of the Roman Empire in the first century. And so people would hear sword in the scriptures and they would think of this sword, the Roman short sword or what was called uh, the gladius. And uh, of course, in today's passage, it's uh, referred to uh, twice. We already saw it in, Rome, in uh, Revelation chapter one in the opening chapter in this glorious description of Christ where the sword is coming out of the mouth of the Lord. If you think earlier in the New Testament, you know that the Apostle Paul wrote about the, uh, the armor of God. He wrote about the sword of the Spirit, which he says in Ephesians 6 is the Word of God. And so when we think about the sword of the Spirit, when we hear references to the sword, we're thinking Word of God. Uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 says that the uh, the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The analogy comes to us again. And he says that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. I want you to think about that without me having to describe what that's like, but it would be an awful mess. But it speaks to the effectiveness of this, this weapon it, it divides soul and spirit. It divides joint and marrow. And listen, is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Close combat. Spiritually close combat is being done in each of our lives. And all of this is relevant to us today because this sword, not this not this object, the sword, but this sword, the sword of the Spirit is being wielded right now as it is every Sunday when we get together. 
The word of God is being brought to bear on our lives as we open the word of God. And what will the result be? You can't come here, expose yourself to the teaching of God's word and not also realize that it will divide your soul and spirit. That it will discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart right now. And all through this time in God's word, we will be pierced. God will know our thoughts. God will know our intentions. And hopefully knowing that, putting ourselves up for that kind of spirit work in our lives will lead us to this this attitude, this heart of ongoing repentance. And that's really the key and the thrust of this message here today. And so let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12 uh, to verse 17. This is the letter to the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right, here's what we're going after. It's on the screen and uh, in your notes. Jesus wields the sharp two-edged sword. It's the word of God being wielded here today. And so we must always be repenting. Now, before we get to the outline itself, let's lay down some things that are going to be important to know. First of all, Um, This letter is, again, following the pattern of the previous letters. Verse 12, it's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Who is that? Who's the him? Sunday school answer, not a trick question. Who is it? Jesus. It's it's very similar. It's Jesus who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's repeated in verse 16. And a little bit more about the sword beyond the very obvious military metaphor, which we understand here. Uh, But this is also a legal term when he's calling on the sword here. It's a legal term in Latin, eus gladii, eus gladii, the right of the sword, the right of the sword, or supreme jurisdiction over life and death. For example, it would be power conferred from the emperor to a governor in all these different provinces of Rome to absolve from or condemn a man to live or die. So when the sword is mentioned here, it's not just about the word of God, the sword of the spirit, but very specifically coming from the mouth of Christ, this is the word of God 
with an emphasis on the judgment of God. Because God is the ultimate and eternal judge, and God has the eus gladii. He has the right of the sword, amen? He has the right of the sword. And because he does, and because we acknowledge that fact as believers, our response to him must be ongoing repentance. I'm going to hear the thing that you're saying to me, God, about things that might need to change in my life, and I'm going to agree with you about those things. I'm going to repent. In fact, we get a hint there of this word repentance. If you look in verse 16, two words there, therefore repent, which is overarching this entire letter, this idea of repentance, but repentance is twofold. And it's very important that we understand both aspects of this to understand what repentance really is. It's kind of a religious word that we use. It's a spiritual word, but do we understand what we're saying when we're talking about repentance? It's twofold. If you're taking notes, write down, I agree and I turn. I agree and I turn. And that's repentance. It's not merely, repentance is not merely sorrow for sin. Like, oh, I'm so sorry I did that, or worse, I'm sorry, so sorry I got caught doing that. If you're a parent and you've raised kids, you know that I'm sorry is never going to cut it with your kids because there are kids who are sorry for the thing they did, but have absolutely no intention of changing anything. In fact, your child can be sorry for what they did and do it again within the next 30 minutes. So sorrow can be part of repentance, but it's not the only part of it. You can be sorry and not change. I agree and I turn. If you agree with God, just so we lock in exactly what this is, and it needs to be both of these things, if you agree, but you don't turn, okay, you don't change, and you haven't repented. And if you turn, you change, but you don't agree, you actually haven't repented. You're complying without your heart actually being engaged with the Lord, without being aligned with him, and you haven't repented. It takes both of these things because one is internal and one is external, and God is concerned with both of these. Repentance internally is agreement. Repentance externally is change or turning toward him. To agree but not change is hypocrisy. To change but not agree is religion. I'll just comply outwardly. I don't really want to, and I don't agree that I should. And so with that in mind, this understanding of the right of the sword, that this is judgment, our understanding of repentance. We come back to our main thought here in the message. Jesus wields the sharp two-edged sword, and so we must always be repenting. First of all, let's look at this, as we have already done, as we have already done. And the important point to receive here is that a person repents once to be saved a person repents once to be saved, and that ongoing repentance in the Christian's life is evidence of sanctification or growth or conforming to the image of Christ more and more throughout your life. And so Jesus is communicating to them as believers, so people that have already repented once for salvation, 
but now need to repent of something else in their life that's inconsistent and incompatible with the Christian life. I like to check in once in a while, just make sure I'm preaching to the right crowd. So I'm just going to ask you a question. You can just nod knowingly. Who here would have something that is inconsistent in their life or incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just nod your head subtly. No one else needs to look around and see that. Just want to make sure that everybody's still with me and this message is for the right people. Right? This is for you. There's something in your life that's inconsistent. Something still in your life that's incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not nodding your head, mm, mm, this is all of us. Now these folks in, in Pergamum had proven the validity of their initial salvation, their initial repentance. They had agreed with God that they were sinners and that they needed a savior. And they had in belief responded to him and their lives had changed for eternity. The church in Pergamum had an awesome track record, in fact, of faithfulness and living out their testimony under the most challenging of circumstances. They had, in fact, verse 13 tells us, they had held fast the name of Jesus Christ in a context that was opposed to Jesus at every turn. They had embraced the gospel. They had understood that Jesus had given his life, shed his blood on the cross for them. They had understood that he was raised on the third day to new life, and they were experiencing the power of that new life for themselves. And when they were pressed by the community around them about the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, when they were pressed knowing that this meant that they would have to reject every other form of worship and devotion that the city offered them, they held fast. They stood firm. And that, in their context especially, was noteworthy because Jesus knew something about their city and says in verse 13, I know where you live. That's where Satan lives. I know how evil your city is, and I know just how hard it would be to hold fast in the midst of a city where Satan's throne is. Now, here's the thing. Commentators spend all kinds of time trying to figure out why exactly Pergamum, of all the cities, is identified so closely with being the seat of Satan, if I can put it that way. And really don't, don't come to any conclusions about that. Why does this, so, this harsh description get pinned to this particular city? Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a center. It was a well-known city and a center for culture, for worship, for commerce. Those things were always intertwined in the ancient culture. And so, you know, like in the ancient world, culture, worship, commerce, those were indivisible. It was a city that was strategic militarily, going all the way back to the time of Alexander the Great. In fact, there was a library in the city that was rivaled only by the library at Alexandria in Egypt. And so it was also a center for education and higher learning. 
In fact, we have a picture here of the ruins at the Acropolis in Pergamum. And um, on the Acropolis, which stood 1,300 feet above the city, if you can imagine being at the base of Blue Mountain, actually, if you can imagine being on the beach and looking up Blue Mountain and adding another 300 feet, another third to Blue Mountain, you get a sense of how high the Acropolis was. On this Acropolis were various temples to various gods. There was a temple there to Trajan, the imperial cult or worshiping of the emperor was there. But also there was a a temple to Zeus and a 40-foot high altar to Zeus that was at the highest point of the Acropolis overlooking the city. So as you look at it, you kind of go, well, this could be Satan's throne, or this could be, it could be Zeus, it could be the Trajan thing, it could be any one of these, but really as you look at it, you just kind of realize it's the whole thing. It's the entire Acropolis that's in the mind of Christ. The whole thing could be considered Satan's throne because all of the distractions were there in that one high place. And so Jesus says to them, and he gives both a positive and negative description here, you hold fast my name, which is awesome, and you did not deny my faith, which is awesome. And they said, you did that even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And he says again, right there in Pergamum, the city where Satan dwells. So one of their own church members, I mean, they knew this vividly. One of their own church members was martyred for the gospel in this city that had a reputation for being the seat of Satan. Now, as as an aside here, you can't look at something like this and not ask some questions about this. And without naming any particular cities or towns, I've had conversations with people who have lived in certain communities that they would say have a higher than normal incidence of spiritual oppression and darkness. That Satan seems to be more active in some cities, in some towns, in some areas than in others. And there seems to be no reason why we would reject that biblically. In fact, reading this and hearing Jesus call out this one particular city, this is a place where Satan lives, seems to give us permission to see that the darkness can overwhelm certain cities in certain places at certain times. That was bonus material. All of that to say, These believers at Pergamum, they'd repented and they'd proven the validity of their repentance by remaining faithful despite severe opposition and living in a very dark place. And that was critically important in order to root out error. You see that next in the outline. In order to root out error, listen now very closely in order to root out error in their midst, in the church. This is not a mandate to crusade against the culture. This is not about rooting out error in Pergamum. This is not about, hey, let's have a protest up on the Acropolis and let's walk around Zeus's temple a hundred times to let them know how evil this is. This is not blanket permission to convert culture. This is about the church. Let's root out error in the church. 
If we want to be aligned with God, when tempted to drift from him, we have to be in an ongoing way repenting, agreeing with him. When we see something that's wrong, agreeing with him. Yep, that's error. That is not consistent with the word of God. And then making the changes that need to be made. So here's the Pergamum situation in particular. He's commending them in a way that's going to serve them well. You've been faithful and you've been repenting. You're going to need that as you deal with this error. He says in verse 14, but Jesus to the church, but I have a few things against you. And it's interesting that he says a few things because then he only shares one. And I would just write in the margin of your Bible, that's grace. You know, like I, have a, I know God has like a lot of things that he could talk to me about, but very often he's just talking to me one at a time about them. And that's kind of awesome and gracious. I have a few things against you. And he mentions this one, you have some there in the church who hold the teaching of Balaam. He was a false prophet in the Old Testament. They hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak, who was the king of the Moabites. So this is at the time when the Israelites are making their way to Israel and they're going through the wilderness. They're going through Moab. They're almost there. And they're going through Moab. So Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block. And if you have the NIV there, the word enticing is there or entice, which is really great. Intentionally influencing God's people to sin or abandon their faith. Very intentional. So that they might, notice here, two things would result from the false teaching. Eat food sacrificed to idols, thus compromising worship, and practice sexual immorality, which is a stand-in really for anything that compromises, any kind of moral thing that compromises our relationship with God. That is to say, spiritual adultery. Now in Pergamum, the big deal was this. There were people in the church who were saying, hey, it's so awesome that you're a Christian, but listen, the imperial cult is so important to the city. The worship of Zeus is so important to the city. Hey, there's a great part of your festival going on at the temple of Athena, and you can be, a, here's, what, here's what it was, you can be a good Christian and, and live out the gospel and still go to the parties at Athena's temple and still worship, you know what? You can be a Christian and still worship the emperor. You can be a good Christian and you can still go and make a sacrifice at Zeus's temple. That's the error that was in the church in Pergamum. That's the error of Balaam, that you could be a good Jewish person on your way to Israel and still participate in the idolatry of Moab, the sexual immorality of Moab. They were compromising worship compromising their relationship with God through spiritual adultery. By the way, that whole story is in Numbers 22 to 24, if you want to track that down later. But in their situation now, specifically, this was known, verse 15, as the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It was the Nicolaitans in particular who were teaching this in the New Testament. The example was from the Old Testament. And in fact, the Nicolaitans had been had been raised earlier in the first letter that we read in the first part of Revelation chapter two, the letter to the Ephesians, they also were dealing with the Nicolaitans in their church. But there was a difference in the way Pergamum was dealing with this and the way that the Ephesians dealt with this. If you remember back to the Ephesian letter, the Ephesians were awesome at truth. 
In fact, it says in that letter that they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And God says, which I also hate. And so they had rooted out the Nicolaitan heresy because they were all about the truth. But what was Ephesus lacking? It was lacking love. Okay, now the church at Pergamum, exactly the opposite. They were all about love, tolerating people in their midst. Oh, we have to be a loving church. We can't force anybody to leave. They were all about love, but they had compromised the truth because these Nicolaitans were leading people away from the gospel. And so Ephesus, truth over love, Pergamum, love over truth, both are problematic. And Jesus gets to that. And so in Pergamum, the problem, number one, problem number one is these people who are enticing people away from the gospel, the Nicolaitans. Problem number two was the church tolerating it in their midst. It's probably the bigger problem. And there's really so much of that going on in the church today where we're just so passive and so tolerant of just anybody that false teaching can actually flourish inside the church. Now, to be clear, as a church, we should be tolerant of one another, gracious and kind and loving toward those who are faltering in their faith, who are struggling with personal sin in their lives because we're all struggling with personal sin in our lives. We should be tolerant of those who are simply still growing in their faith and learning about the gospel. But we must be intolerant of those in the church who are not aligned with the gospel and who are intentionally drawing others away. That is the message of the church, of the letter to the church in Pergamum. And I was just thinking about this just as we continue to understand the difference between these two. One of my favorite Gospel stories, Mark chapter 9, there's this man and he's bringing his son and his son is, is possessed by a demon, pretty evident, and he, he, he gives all the description of, of what was happening to his son. It's pretty obvious what was happening. The, son, the, the, the dad went to the disciples initially. He said to the disciples, here's what's happening to my son. Could you pray that he would be healed of this demon? The disciples prayed and nothing happened. And the man was like, what gives? Can I see your manager? And so he went to Jesus. And Jesus came to him and said, what's going on? And, and he describes the whole thing for Jesus. Here's my son and your disciples couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus said that nothing will be impossible for those who believe. And the man said to him, and this is an awesome, awesome line. I believe, he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. He expresses, and I love this because this is where you and I live if we're being honest. We're not always at the top of the Christian game. Sometimes it's super hard and we go like, I believe in Jesus, but man, this is hard. I really need Jesus to help me believe right now. This man in one short sentence to Jesus expresses both faith and doubt struggle at the same time. But that person, that person we should tolerate. That person we should love and embrace and show grace to. But the person who is purposefully undermining the faith of others, this person, instead of saying, I believe, help my unbelief, is going to others and saying, you believe, let me help you unbelieve. 
In fact, this is, this is the prevailing attitude in our culture today. Maybe you've heard the word deconstruction. It's being applied in all kinds of sectors, corners of our culture today. We live in an age of deconstruction. A whole generation, in fact, is being encouraged to deconstruct their faith. This is the era of the Nicolaitans. The letter to the church in Pergamum speaks to this with such clarity. Way back in the 90s, I took a seminary course on postmodernism. We learned what our culture, what our culture really had moved to after uh, the rationalism of uh, the modern era. We now live in an era of postmodernism. And one of the key tenets of postmodernism is this. Truth, if it exists, truth, if it exists, cannot be known. So they hold out the possibility that there could be truth. But even if it exists, can we really know what it is? And when you have that understanding of truth, then deconstructionism flows naturally. It's a byproduct of postmodernism. And so for young people raised in the church today, the cultural push is for them to deconstruct their faith. They want to deconstruct their faith. Great article by John Stone Street and Timothy Paget on the Breakpoint website. This is Chuck Colson's ministry. Um, the term deconstruction is being used prescriptively today, especially toward those questioning what they've grown up with. It is being recommended as a courageous thing to do. Deconstruct your faith. Tear it all apart. Rethink everything you, you ever knew with the purpose of setting it aside. The authors say, but to applaud or even recommend deconstruction lands somewhere between unhelpful and dangerous. You see, here's, here's the thing about deconstructionism. It, like, I, I've, I've known Jesus for 42 years. I came to Christ when I was 15 years old. So I've spent 42 years in the church, more than four decades. And in that time, I've met plenty of people who were terribly disappointing. Plenty of people who said they loved Jesus and lived exactly the opposite way. I've, I've known about and been in churches that have gone through terrible seasons where you wondered if anyone was saved. Every one of us, if we've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, we all have stories. We all have examples. We've all met people where we go, I just wish they would leave because they're terrible. We all have plenty of evidence that faith, if we want to look for it, we all have plenty of evidence to say, based on the evidence, faith is bogus, or worse, faith is toxic. And that's what's being pushed on young people today and we would say, yeah, we all have those stories. We have those stories because, yes, let's acknowledge, people are terrible. Aren't they? Do you know the same people I do? Because people are terrible to each other. Even in the church, even, even Christians can be terrible to each other. That's just life on planet Earth. That's not a reason to deconstruct your faith. The authors go on to say this, Scripture, especially the Psalms, not only creates 
plenty of space for doubting and questioning, but describes how God meets us in our questions and doubts. So if all that is meant by deconstruction is asking tough questions about God or faith, that's a normal part of the Christian life and need not mean deconversion. This book deconstructs faith. This book asks the hard questions. This book sometimes leaves an ellipsis at the end of the sentence, so it's incomplete and it's, it's hard for us even to understand the challenges of how we live life on earth, apart from keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord. This book doesn't hide any of the warts and the challenges and the awfulness and the terribleness. It actually exposes all of it. This book allows us to ask all the hard questions. And the most important part of what Stone Street and Paget said, and by the way, the link is in the notes for the, art, the full article. The most important part of this that they say is that God meets us in that place. God meets us in that place. The believers in Pergamum were being led away the, by the prospect of false religion, by idols that would steal their hearts away from the gospel. And the solution was then and is now repent. Agree with God. Not people. Don't agree with me. What a terrible disappointment you will be if you agree with me. Agree with the word. Agree with God. but also turn, change, not for my sake, not for your spouse's sake, not for your friend's sake, not for anyone else's sake, but God's. Agree with God, not people. Turn back to God, not people. Because when you turn back to people, it's just going to lead to more disappointment. Oh, this person hurt me. This person burned me. This person ruins my life. I'm going to turn to this person and guess what? They're going to disappoint you too. And you're already starting because of this person at a deficit with this person. And if you have to move on to a third or fourth person and your eyes are only on the people, that's leading to a whole lifetime of heartache. God, God meets us. So let's think a little more deeply about this and apply this to some common errors that we may actually be tolerating in the church that are undermining the effect of the gospel in people's lives. So let's repent of these three things. I'm fully prepared in this section of the message to upset some of you and for you to be angry with me. That's fine. Let's repent of the let it go error. Let it go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's the let it go error. That is incorrect. You are incorrect. Who sang that one? I'm glad I didn't. But as parents, we're pumping this Disney drivel into the lives of our children. Now, by the way, I'm not saying stop watching Disney movies or Pixar or any of that. I'm not saying that. 
What I'm saying is we have to do it in a lot more discerning way, parents. You're just letting them watch it, parking them in front of the TV or the iPad and letting them watch indiscriminately through these things without any conversation, without any correction, without pointing them back to the gospel. There's a problem. So parents, don't be mad at me until you read the article that I've linked in the sermon notes to an article by Trevin Wax from the Gospel Coalition who talks through all of this because, listen, it's insane to think that you could just boycott all of these influences. If you lived in Pergamum, you weren't going to be able to ignore the Acropolis. It was there, imposing over the entire city, enforcing its will over every citizen. You couldn't boycott it. You can be discerning, and you can make choices that are going to help you remain true to the gospel. All right, that's the first one. Let's see if I can offend some more people. Let's repent of the I did it my way error. Let's go after all the old crooners in the crowd. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much, much more. I did it. We can take care of this one very quickly. If you do it your way, you'll go to hell. <laughs> Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You are not the way. You are not the way to heaven. You are the way to hell. And the thing that's interesting in both of these first two songs is that really the temple that's on the Acropolis is the temple to self. That's the God who's worshiped today. If any of you are left, I have one more. Repent of the imagine error. Well, this one's getting new traction today. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. The crazy thing is King Solomon slayed this argument 3,500 years ago. I did not withhold anything, Solomon said. I experienced it all, and he had the wealth to experience it all. And he said, it's all chasing after the wind. It's futile. It's meaningless. Vanity of vanities, he said. So you're wrong, John. You know what these are? These are the hymns of the Acropolis. These are the worship songs and chorus sung in these pagan temples. These are the songs of this generation where Satan's throne is. Songs designed to take us from Christ. And so we must root out error. To avoid, look at this next, to avoid a battle with God. 
if we go back to the very creation, in fact, if you go back before the creation, before Genesis 1, and when we get to Revelation chapter 12, just hang on through this series, we're going to get to Revelation 12, we're going to look at this, because it deals with a time that actually, you think Revelation's all future, but it isn't. You get to Revelation 12, you get to see a time that happened before Genesis 1. Satan picked a fight with God. I wouldn't really care about that. That's his prerogative to pick a fight with God. The problem is he dragged all of us into the fight on his side. By default, every one of us is born on Satan's side in the fight with God. But every one of us, by the grace of God, has the option to switch sides. I'm no longer happy about being on Satan's side, so I think I'll go with God's side now. That's what our salvation is actually all about. Because it's such a bad idea to do battle with God. Don't you think so? Such a bad idea to do battle with God, to be at war with him. And if that's you, listen, you're still on Satan's side. Why are you there? By the way, there's, just in case you're thinking this, there's no Switzerland in this fight. Okay, no neutral territory between, you're either for God or you're against him. You're on Satan's side or God's side. You're one side or the other, but there's no neutrality. Now that sounds, just the way I said that, that sounds like an overtly evangelistic appeal for people to come to faith in Christ, and it was. But of course, in this letter, Jesus is appealing to believers in the church, and he's telling them, you are passively contributing to the success of the enemy by tolerating false teaching in the midst of the church. And he's saying to his own people, to Christians, I'm coming at you. You're picking a fight with your own Savior and Lord. That's one thing for unbelievers to fight with God. They don't have the relationship that we do. They don't understand the scriptures as we do. They don't have the Holy Spirit resident in them as we do. They don't know what God is like as we do. What would possess any of us who know Christ? What would possess any of us to tempt God to discipline us? You see, the good news that we should never take advantage of is that God is gracious and long-suffering. Romans 6 deals with the abuse of grace. We should never abuse grace. We should never think, you know, I can do this because God's going to forgive me. And yet God is very gracious and, and long-suffering, and so he gives them a chance. Verse 16, this is what he's writing to them to give them a chance. Verse 16, he says, therefore, repent. Okay, I've just laid out the problem. I need you to agree with me to turn. And he warns them, if you don't do this, I'm going to come to you soon in judgment and war against them, the enticers, the Nicolaitans, and he's going to war with them with the sword of his mouth, he says. And if he's warring against them and they're in the church, for sure there's going to be collateral damage to the entire church. God says, I'm going to do this because I have the eus gladii. I have the right of the sword. I have the authority to judge. And so apart from repentance, there's no other way. There's no other way you can do this. It's got to be repentance. It's just agree with God and turn. You can't backfill disobedience with other things 
that would gain favor with God. It's not like, well, you know what? I know I'm being disobedient in this area, so what I'll do is I'll give more, or I'll serve more, or I'll go to more worship services, or I'll listen to worship music, or I'll be a nicer person. Can't backfill disobedience. Only repentance. Without it, judgment will come to the church and will especially come on those leading people away from their allegiance to Christ. You don't want to you don't want to be part of that fight. So avoid the battle with God and see this finally and instead find what, what we're looking for in him alone. Like the other letters, we have a command here to hear and obey. This is the listen up verse, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. Then the promise, again, like the other letters, to the one who conquers in this letter, the one who's standing on the word of God, listening to the sword of the Spirit as it emanates from the mouth of Christ, the one who's dealing with the error of the Nicolaitans, the one who conquers, that's the one who conquers in this letter. I will give two things. I will give some of the hidden manna. So there's, there's provision. We know that Hannah, manna was given to the Israelites in the desert to feed them. So this is provision. God says, I'm going to feed you. No need for you to look anywhere else to be satisfied. You don't need to be going up to the Acropolis to be satisfied. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you all you need. And then he says this, I'm going to give, I'm going to give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's the stone? What's, what do you think the stone is? One commentator listed seven possibilities for what the stone could be, and then said, I don't know. <laughs> page after page I'm reading, you hope you come to the conclusion. Nope, I don't know what it is. No one knows what it is. We don't know what the white stone is, but here's what we do know. The white stone has a name on it that only I'm going to know, and Jesus is handing them out. And I just got to tell you, if Jesus is handing anything out, I'm standing in line. How about you? It doesn't matter what it is. It could be puppies. It could be white stones. It could be anything. I'm standing in line. It could be swag, like a nice t-shirt. If Jesus is handling, handing something out, I'm there. So Jesus is handing out these white stones. It's got a name written in it. I'm the only one who's going to know what the name is, me and the Lord. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? It speaks to identity. So Jesus said the two promises, if you're a conqueror, the two promises are, I'm going to satisfy every one of your needs and I'm going to put a name on you so you don't have to worry about finding your identity in anything else. It's a plague today. Identity, identity is a plague today. It is leading so many away from the gospel. So many of us struggle right here on this point because we're trying to find our identity in things that are good and they're gifts from God, but the wrong thing to find our identity in. Your identity is not in your family. It's not in your family name. Your identity is not in, in, in your marriage, in your spouse. It's not in your children or grandchildren. That is not your identity. As important as your race is, it's, it's not in your nationality or race. Don't find your primary identity there. This problem alone is causing so much grief in our culture today. Don't find your identity in your education or career. Those are dead-end streets, not in wealth or power or influence. Solomon figured that out. Your identity is not found in how young or how old you are, what generation you're a part of. And this is a big one. Your identity is not in your gender or your sexuality. 
If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the king. Full stop. Everything else is just extra. That's what's written on the white stone, don't you think? You're his. You're his. Now it just solves so many other issues that we're struggling with. We're Christ, and until we get that, we're going to be attracted to every catchy song, every shiny temple on the Acropolis, every high place, every teaching. We're still going to be attracted to every teaching that tickles the ears. C.S. Lewis summed it up perfectly. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Let's end that long, terrible story for ourselves. The believers of the church in Pergamum heard that loud and clear in the letter from Jesus. Well, let's hear that letter too. Let's make it ours. Jesus wields the sharp two-edged sword. And so we must always be repenting as we've already done in order to root out error, avoid a battle with God, and instead find what we're looking for in Him alone. Do you agree with that? Then let's turn. Let's turn to Him. Let me pray. Father, I think it's safe uh, to say um, None of us really wants to fight with you, although some of us by default do. So God, help us by your Holy Spirit to see what we need to see in ourselves, what we need to see in the church, to ask some hard questions. Are we, are we going after the things of this world to satisfy us, to find our identity? Are we leading others, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are we leading others to do the same? Father, forgive us if we've done either or both of these things. Help us to find our sufficiency in you alone, Father. Help us to lead others to Christ alone. You have given us a name, and you feed us with the bread of life. You are the bread of life. You are the living water, and I pray, God, that we would drink deeply to eat of the abundance that you've given to us. Find our joy and our satisfaction and our identity as sons and daughters in you alone. Thank you, God, for your long-suffering, your patience with us as we work these things out. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.